Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm your host, Fred Dews. In this episode, my colleague Bill Finan speaks with Marvin Kolb about his new Brookings Institution Press book, Imperial Gamble, Putin, Ukraine, and the New Cold War. Kolb is a non-resident senior fellow in foreign policy at Brookings and was once NBC's Moscow bureau chief. Stay tuned after the interview for our coffee break to hear a European scholar explain why he thinks the European Union is the big bet of international relations and also why you should read Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead. And now over to Bill. Thanks, Fred. Marvin, glad to see you, and thanks for taking time to talk to us today about your new book. You write an imperial gamble that we can only begin to understand the crisis in Ukraine by understanding the history of Ukraine's relationship with Russia. But you, too, have a history as a correspondent. Can you tell us a bit about your own background with the old and the new Russia? It's very interesting, and I'm not quite sure I know exactly where to start, but just earlier today, I was having a discussion with a naval officer here at Brookings. And I was trying to explain to him how difficult it is to today to talk about Ukraine and the relationship with Russia. When I first started teaching Russian history in the 1950s, it was very easy to talk about Ukraine as simply part of the Russian Empire and part of the way Russia has always been. And that was our understanding. And it was based upon the historical fact that from for the last thousand years, that part of the region that we now call Ukraine has been hooked up in one way or another with another part of that region that we now call Russia. And Russia was always the stronger of the two. So Russia would get its way and Ukraine would be seen, as I say in the book, as sort of a wayward cousin, but nevertheless a member of the family. And so you would, you would think about Ukraine very much as a part of Russia. Today, that is not the case. Ukraine has every reason in the world to believe that it is an absolutely sovereign country, an independent country, but it does have a history that it cannot escape. So that leads me into another question here that, that I wanted to ask you. And you, you, in writing this book, you had to draw on a lot of research. Um, but at the same time, you, you said it was a, a learning experience. And so I'm curious, <laughs> was there any single insight or piece of knowledge that you picked up in doing this book, in writing this book, that you were surprised by? Not necessarily surprised by, but very interested in. And because I had always approached an understanding of Ukraine from a somewhat Russian point of view, because as a CBS correspondent, I had lived and worked in Moscow for five years in the late 50s through the early 60s. I simply knew of Ukraine through a Russian prism. But in the course of researching this book, one of the wonders for me was the richness of what is currently called Ukrainian culture, the Ukrainian language, Ukrainian writers, people who over hundreds of years developed a respect for themselves and for, for what they represented, for their own poetry, for their own music. The shame of it is that until recent years, many of the Ukrainian composers 
and poets and writers considered themselves to be Russian, Ukrainian, uh, Russian poets and, and composers. That was the amazing part of it. They, they thought of themselves within that larger Russian civilization rather than their own. So in the last 25 years since independence has fully blossomed, has that, that changed? I mean, there's a, a, mo- a much fuller sense of Ukrainianness now, I guess. Oh, absolutely. I think um, since 1991, at the end of the Soviet Union, the end of communism as a global philosophy, Ukrainians have come to understand that they are an independent culture. The shame of it is that though they are, they are locked into a history which may deny them the full expression of their politics and, and their culture. And they can't escape that. It is simply part of their history. I think, I think you've actually answered the next question I wanted to ask, which is why so much history to understand what I think are the two essential questions this book is asking. Why did Putin annex Crimea and what does it mean for the future of Russia and the West? When I, when I started doing the research for this book, one of the things that I did was to go back and read notes of the classes that I used to do 50 and 60 years ago as a graduate student, and that was in Russian history. And I was trying to figure out that if you could go back 50, 60 years and get a vision of what a young teacher at Harvard was trying to convey to students— then put that into a larger historical framework, then you could begin to understand a Russian attitude toward Ukraine and a Ukrainian attitude back toward Russia. And I realized uh, rather quickly, I'm happy to say, that unless you went back a thousand years, truly, you would not understand why Putin is doing what he's doing now, either in Crimea or Ukraine or even Syria. You couldn't because the thousand years gives you the perspective and the reasoning and the psychological backdrop for current actions that may confound the West, may confound the president of the United States, but they don't confound Russian nationalists people who've been raised on this history. So how does Putin and Russia generally view Ukraine? At this point, I believe that he sees Ukraine as an independent nation. However, an independent nation that can never be regarded by Russians as a threat to Russia. In other words, if Ukraine were to join the European Union, uh uh-uh, the Russians would say, That would be a signal that you really have hostile intent toward us. Let's say Ukraine were to join NATO. Well, that would be proof that you have a hostile intent toward us. So Putin is, in effect, saying by the control that he exercises in the southeast corner of Ukraine, the region called the Donbass, he controls that region now. By controlling it, he can effectively control the political and diplomatic and military future of Ukraine. And he is saying to them, you guys want to consider yourselves independent? Great. Consider yourselves independent. But not, don't ever take into your mind, and Putin is saying this now, don't ever take into your mind 
that you use that, that independence in an anti-Russian way because we will not allow it. And the majority of the Russian people would also follow the similar, similar thinking. The majority of Russian people who think about politics and in any country that you're dealing really with a minority of the people who truly care about what is happening, most people, I mean, I think in Russia or the U.S., most people are absorbed with their families, with jobs, with their health, with a whole variety of important close-in emotions. And they don't really care terribly much about what Putin is doing here, there, and elsewhere. Where they begin to care is if their sons and daughters are brought back in body bags. Then they'll care. Then they will raise questions. And I think that one of the reasons that Putin has been so devious in the manner in which he operates in Ukraine is that he does not want to allow the buildup of any emotional backlash. The Russians are very emotional people. If you get them thinking that they're being taken to the cleaners, that they're being asked to fight a war, but they're not being leveled with, that even if they have to fight a war and a son comes back in a body bag, that we cannot honor the son and bury him properly, that they would find unacceptable. And that is where Putin has to be very careful within Russia today on how he handles the body bags. It's a big issue. That's, that's interesting. Do you think he learned that from Chechnya? I think that that was reinforced as a result of the wars in Chechnya. But Putin is a product of the Soviet educational system. In other words, to understand Putin, you have to go back to Soviet times. That's when he got <clears throat> the idea that he should be an officer in the KGB, the secret police. That's when he got the idea of what is Russian history? What is, when they talk about Matushka Rasiya, Mother Russia, what is it that is in his mind? And he got all of that in a Soviet classroom. I stress that because the Soviet classroom was a place for very narrow learning. You didn't really have a sense of the truth about what was happening. The truth was simply something manufactured to satisfy the needs of the Communist Party at that moment. And that's pretty much what Putin's view is today. He is a former KGB colonel. He thinks like a product of the Soviet system. And yet he's an odd kind of despot, but a despot he is. And the oddness comes into play that he's incredibly self-confident. He is competent to an extent, and he is very modern. If you sit down with Putin and you have a conversation, he doesn't have a note in front of him. He just talks for two or three hours about all issues. He's very smart. Cunning is the word that I would use to describe him over and over. He's a, he's a cunning, streetwise KGB colonel. <laughs> I, I want to come back to, to Putin in a moment. I want to ask you a change, change of perspective here very quickly, though. How do the Ukrainians view Putin and Russia? Well, they at one point had absolutely no use for him at all. Now, as a result of what Putin's Russia has done to Ukraine, they hate him. Now, 
I got to be very careful in saying they. Most of the people in Ukraine living in the western and central regions of the country hate him. The Ukrainians living in the eastern third of the country may not like him, but there is an element of respect because they are in their soul, these Ukrainians living in the eastern part of the country, they are almost part of Russia. As a matter of fact, when the border was drawn between Ukraine and Russia after World War II, drawn uh, to Stalin's liking, by the way, on a number of places, they never drew a line on the map because it was simply open territory claimed by both countries. And people were going back and forth. They didn't need any visas or anything like that. They had only history. They felt that they could move, the Russians could move into what is currently Ukraine. Ukrainians move into Russia. They, they brought stuff back and forth. Um, it was all the same. And yet now they will fight for each yard. That nationalist sense That's has been the, reinforced. the reawakened nationalism in Ukraine. Um, near the end of the book, you say Ukraine is Ukraine's biggest problem. Yes. What do you mean by that? What I mean is that the people who run Ukraine today have a number of, of huge problems. The first is that the economy while it's getting a little better, still has a long way to go. Number two, they need money to invest. Where do you get the money? You get it from foreign countries or international organizations. These organizations are prepared to help Ukraine, but only up to an extent, certainly not to provide as much money as Ukraine needs. Ukraine needs an army. That costs a lot of money. They don't have it. The Ukrainian army is a joke, really. Uh, most of the people fighting against the Russian-backed rebels in the southeast corner of Ukraine are not members of the Ukrainian army. They're part of militias from all over the country that come to fight in a very nationalistic way. So these are self-formed militias? These are militias that are self-formed and they owe their allegiance to localities within Ukraine. And the people who run those localities um, go ahead and provide these people to fight against the Russians. Possibly the largest problem that the Ukrainians have right now is the graft and the corruption that runs through the entire system. There is nothing that you can't buy if you have the money. And there is very little feeling of genuine nationalism where the people living a thousand miles away from Kiev look toward Kiev, the capital, and say, you are our leader. No, they will look locally for a leader who buys them off, who gives them the money they need to live. And in exchange, those people owe their loyalty to a local leader, not to the national leader. And they feel, many Ukrainians, and we see this in, in tremendous, wonderful polling data that is now being done, most of the Ukrainians right now are fed up 
with the central government because they thought after their big demonstrations in 2013-2014 that topple the old regime, introduce these new men, that these people would provide for them and do good things. And what they find is that it's not true. So when I say that Ukraine is Ukraine's biggest problem, in order for us to resolve this issue, the most important thing, truly, is for the Ukrainians to build a country that works, a country where there is not the kind of gangsterism and cronyism that currently determines Ukrainian reality. I don't want to be misunderstood. There are many young Ukrainians who are trying to do a good thing. They have limited success. But when you look at it overall and you try to say, can they really make it within the next 10 years? I doubt it. I wanted to ask about the rebel groups in eastern Ukraine. Are they truly indigenous? Are they merely pawns of Russia? What is your your view on them? Most of the people who are fighting in the southeast corner of Ukraine are supported by the Russians. And that means they're given money. They're paid by the Russians. They are given armaments by the Russians. And the Russians themselves come in and teach them to use these modern weapons. When the plane was shot down last summer in 2014, the Malaysian airline, that airline was more than likely shot down with a Russian missile, probably fired by Russians, but aided by Ukrainian rebels who were working with the Russians. Now, the Russians say, Putin says over and over again, I don't have regular army troops in Ukraine. That's probably true. But he has a lot of troops going back and forth. The latest estimates run as high as 10,000 Russian troops in Ukraine. But if there's any fighting to do, they'd rather that the rebels do the fighting. It is not an accident, as the Russians like to say, that when, for diplomatic reasons, Putin decided to calm everything down for a period of several months now, all he has to do is say to the Ukrainians fighting on his behalf, hey, buddy, you do what I say. If you don't do what I say, you get no money, you get no support, whatever. So they have to do what Putin says. He controls that. And because he controls that, he controls the political future of Ukraine. Do you think Putin intervened in Syria in order to distract global attention from Ukraine? Was that one of the factors? I think that was certainly one of the factors, but I don't think it was the major factor. I think the major factor was that he was trying to save an ally, namely Bashar al-Assad. Um, and the Assad family really has been an ally of Russia now for decades. And the Assad people were in very bad shape about four months ago, three months ago. And when it seemed as if Assad was going to collapse, Putin decided he had to go in and save him. I want to come back to Putin himself as you were discussing him earlier. Did the West misread him initially? I think the answer to that has to be yes. Not only misread him, but certainly misread his policy, his intentions, his motivations. When the Soviet Union disintegrated in 1991, most people in Washington 
And I have to say with some embarrassment, even people here at Brookings did not really pay any attention to Russia. They began to dismiss it. It wasn't part of their thinking. Russia had been beaten in the Cold War. It was the loser. It was weak. And who cares what went on in Russia? And so for a lot of people who should have been paying attention to Russia, we thought about other things. Putin is the one who brought Russia back into the deliberations in the West. And it's very interesting that the British House of Lords did a study in which they tried to analyze the Western reaction to Putin and his attacks in Crimea and Ukraine. They had a great line. They said, the West was sleepwalking through history. They simply paid no attention to it. They were asleep. Putin has made the West become aware once again that there is a Russia, and Putin is determined that Russia be seen once again and appreciated once again as a great power. That doesn't mean it is a great power. It means please pay us the courtesies that go along with being a great power. And because Putin does not trust the West, and he certainly does not trust the United States, he is a man who first and foremost is a Russian nationalist. He's not a communist, not a fascist, certainly is not a Democrat. He is a nationalist leader who puts the interests of the Russian state ahead of the interests of everything. We end here with a less than democratic Ukraine, um, a newly assertive Russia, and this conflict, which continues to to bubble on in, 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 in some form, um, a bloody form at that. Uh, how do you see this ending? How do you see this working toward the future? I don't see it as ending as, say, the end of the Cold War with some dramatic moment that people later on can point to a date and say, aha, it ended on January 11th. No, I think that we will more than likely see a continuing buildup of pressure, anxiety, unhappiness, incompleteness among most Russians. They're undergoing a rather severe economic crunch right now. The Russians had lived at the beginning of the Putin era in the belief that if Putin can provide more cars, better apartments, good food, and he was because the price of oil was 120 bucks a gallon. It's now 46. If you can do that, we don't care that much about our liberty. You can take that from us, but provide for us. Now, he is not providing for them at home. Bellies are not being filled and apartments are getting dingy and you can't buy gasoline unless you've got the money. And things are getting rough. And another issue that comes up time and again that must be understood and appreciated. More than 20 million Russians in a country of 144 million are Muslims, and they are Sunni 
Muslims. And the Russians today in Syria are killing Sunni Muslims. And the Sunni Muslims in Russia are already beginning to show their irritation with that policy. And I would just predict, and I don't think it's a wild prediction, that we're going to see some kind of Chechen-like upheaval in Russia in the near future. And I think that that will have a major effect on Putin, weakening his political position dramatically, and it will have an effect on Russian policy. But how exactly this all works out, God alone knows. You were present at the creation of the first Cold War, and now you've written a book talking about the creation of a new Cold War. Do you see this new Cold War one that will be as similar to the last, or is, is this one that will play out in different fashion? I say in the, the uh, subtitle of the book is Putin, Ukraine, and the New Cold War. And I, have, I had in mind there not only that it would be new in the sense of the old being resurrected. No, it will be a new type of Cold War. Number one, the old Cold War was between two ideologically motivated blocks. There was a, a universal communist ideology driving Russia and China and North Vietnam. It was sort of all over the world, and they were seeking a kind of universal victory. This Russia is not that at all. It doesn't have anything universal about it except a strong sense of nationalism, which we are going to have to contend with. In that context, a strong nationalist America and a strong nationalist Russia, they will be in competition in all parts of the world. So in a way, there is a comparison that could be made, but it is of a different mindset, a different national commitment. It's simply different, but the competition will be very severe. Well, thank you, Marvin. As My always, pleasure. a pleasure to sit down and talk with you. <laughs> thank you. Find out more about the book at brookings.edu slash imperialgamble. And now it's time for Coffee Break. My name is Matteo Garavoglia. I'm the visiting fellow for the Italy program at the Center for the United States and Europe uh, within the Foreign Policy Program. What inspired me to become a scholar? Probably the acknowledgement that I am both an idealist and some sort of obnoxious geek. Um, uh, I come from a place that is probably today the, the big bet of international relations, Europe. Uh, the EU is a construction site, uh, and you could think of it as a UPO, uh, an unidentified political object that tries to move beyond the nation state. And, and therefore, I'm, I, I'm European, and I wanted to contribute to this work in progress. A top misconception that people have about my field, well, probably is the the... the, the the idea of Europe in the sense of treating Europe as a big unitary entity. There's not such a thing. When we think about Europe, we should think about EU member states, so the nation states that make up the European Union, or supranational institutions, the European Commission, the European Council, the European Parliament in Brussels that are beyond the nation state, or possibly the many ideas of Europe that, that exist, you know, the, going back to Greek philosophy to Christian heritage to today uh, a very 
multicultural and cosmopolitan concept. The most important issue that we are facing today, well, at least from my point of view, is something but in, in general, but particularly in, in the European context, we face a situation whereby there's a gap between politics and policy. Uh, by politics, I mean uh, political life, which is primarily taking place still uh, at the national level. And by policy, I mean policy making, which is increasingly done at a supranational level beyond the nation state. And we have this gap, and, and, and this is a huge problem for, I think, at least two reasons. One, uh, this is a problem in terms of the quality, quality of the legislative output. That is to say, if politicians win political kudos at the national level, they will have an interest to um, pass uh, and, and push for legislative proposals that are good for their own silly little nation state, but not for the greater good of Europe, in my case, where I come from, or for, for the global good. And the other big problem is in terms of the quality of the democratic process and democratic life. If citizens keep an eye on politicians at the national level, because that's where they look at political life, but on the other hand, policymaking takes place at the supranational level, so beyond the nation state, well, citizens are keeping an eye on the wrong level somehow. And this is a problem because democracy requires citizens to, to be able to check what's going on. What am I working on now? Uh, well, in, in general, I work on the soft side. I call it the soft side of the European Union common foreign and security policy. That means humanitarian aid, development assistance, um, human rights, democracy support, election observation missions. But of course, now the big thing I'm following is the migrant crisis uh, in Europe. Indeed, I've just uh, put up a few days ago uh, a post uh, blog post for Brookings went up looking at the, the causes of this of the European mismanagement of its migrant crisis and in a nutshell the the nation state is the culprit for it and now I'm looking at uh, possible long term solutions somehow things that we might want to keep in mind and that um, the European political establishment should keep in mind. Uh, when moving beyond the, the firefighting, beyond the emergency phase, and moving on to uh, more structural solutions. A book that I would like to recommend, well, I don't know if I would recommend it, but I enjoy it, so I'll just say it. Um, that is uh, the 1943 novel by, I never know how you guys pronounce it here, Ayn Rand, The Fountainhead. Um, I mean, the, the, Fountainhead is, the Fountainhead has traditionally been looked at as, as a metaphor of you know victory of individualism over collectivism and however that it's not really the the way I look at it uh, for me uh, the Fountainhead is is I look at it as an as an inspiring example of somehow the struggle that an individual goes through to stay coherent with himself uh, and that is probably the reason why I went back to it over the years because it's something that helped me to um, remember that no matter what. Every morning, it is my own face the one I have to look at it in the mirror, nobody else's. My thanks to our audio engineer, Zach Colzer, our artist, Jessica Pavone, and our online support team of Carissa Nitschi, Rebecca Weiser, Eric Abalahan, and our intern, Karen Whalegurgis. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes, listen on Stitcher, and send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.